One of the, the things that I've come to understand more and more as I've uh, grown older is that um, a person's perspective uh, and understanding about a word or, or a phrase has an incredible amount of impact on communication. So, so as a child growing up, I just assumed that every word had a single definition, right? I mean, we were kind of taught words this way. We'd learn how to spell them, and then along with that, you'd go to this, you know, well, there was this guy named Webster who knew all the definitions of every word, and he put them all in a book, right? And so we would go look it up. You could find, if you knew how to spell the word, right? Did you ever get frustrated by that? You'd ask your teacher how to spell a word, and they'd say, look it up in the dictionary. And it's like, I don't know how to spell it. But anyway, so you'd go look it up, and there'd be this definition there. But the reality is that words and phrases don't have a single definition, do they? And, and at times, the dictionary would have multiple definitions, and that was helpful. But while a word or, or even a phrase may have common definitions or even historical definitions, those things are combined with a person's own perspective and understanding to produce a person's working definition, which can be very different <laughs> from uh, a dictionary definition. So it's a person's working definition that informs what they hear you or I to be saying when we use certain words or phrases. So for example, today we're going to be using the word family quite a bit. We're talking about the church as a family. That's the metaphor for today. That word is one that can be greatly affected by a person's perspective and experience. And I, I was just, I came across some different quotes about family that I think <laughs> captures this pretty well. So, so there's uh, one quote by an Irish novelist named George Moore. He said, a man travels the world over in search of what he needs and returns home to find it. I mean, he's, he's got a picture of family in his head, doesn't he, as he, as he gives that quote. Or there's a quote by, um, by the sometimes controversial comedian, uh, George Carlin. He said, the other night I ate at a real nice family restaurant. Every table had an argument going on. <laughs> he's picturing something different about family, isn't he? Uh, I came across a World War II veteran and Olympian, uh, Louis Zap Zamperini. He said, the world we've discovered doesn't love you like your family loves you. Which again, he's got a picture in his mind. Came across another one by another comedian, Jerry Seinfeld. He said, there's no such thing as fun for the whole family. So again, <laughs> something about comedians, right? They just view the world a little differently. But, but really, I mean, jokes aside... I, we're going to see today how, how believers in Jesus are referred to most commonly in the New Testament by familial terms. So brother, sister, uh, father, mother, son, daughter, things like that. And, and in examining this picture of the church, that of a family, I want to begin by recognizing that, that we probably have different understandings and emotional responses to that term. For some of us, when we think about uh, we think about our family, and we experience feelings of security 
and warmth and, and maybe yearning for family members who, who have passed away. Um, but for others, we might think about family and experience feelings of pain and rejection or regret. And, and so, so I don't want to go into this discussion today assuming that we're all starting from the exact same understanding, that we all picture family the same way. There can be a lot of baggage with that word. What I do want to say as we start today is, is that when, when Jesus, or Peter, or Paul, or others speak about followers of Jesus in familial terms, they're doing so with the ideal of that term in mind. So they're calling them a brother, for example, in the highest ideal of that relationship. So, so no matter what our personal experience or, or personal emotional response is to family, we need to work hard to keep that in its proper place this morning when, when we're talking about this metaphor, because it's being used in the Bible in that ideal sense. So I just wanted to make sure that we kind of state that before we go into it. When believers in the New Testament are referred to using the family metaphor, it's usually in one of two broad categories. Either the focus is upon the larger church, the worldwide church, or the focus is upon the local church. We'll see both of those, and we'll talk about both of those this morning. Well, we'll talk about the, the worldwide church first, how it applies there. In just a few places that we see this, uh, this is what Paul had in mind in Galatians 4. I mean, he's writing to a local church, but in chapter 4, he's speaking in a, in a more, uh, more broad sense. In Galatians 4, 4, he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now there, there is such a richness in what Paul writes there about the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, are all spoken of in those verses, and it's clear that within the Trinity, there is a relationship that exists along with a unity of purpose. And, and, and what I think is truly incredible is not just the, the, the relationship that exists within the Trinity, but that humans can be adopted as sons and daughters and brought into that relationship. That's what Paul's speaking of here, and it's really incredible. We, too, are given the ability to call out to God as our Father. I mean, we receive sonship rather than being a slave. And Paul talked about this uh, in other places, too. In Romans chapter 8, um, he picks up on this concept again. Chapter 8, verse 14, he says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, 
provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So, so Paul describes the, the relationship within the, within the Trinity and, and humans being brought into that using familial terms. Because of God's desire and his work within humanity, we're, we're given a way to be welcomed into that family, being adopted as sons and daughters, uh, becoming children of God and, and fellow heirs with Christ, as Paul says. Um, and we think about that, being heirs with Christ. I mean, there, there is, there's so much there that could be further explored that would probably take us down a rabbit trail and away from our, our current topic this morning. But um, in order to remain focused, I thought I'd, I'll just say a brief thing about, about being heirs with Christ. Our inheritance as an heir, what we receive as an inheritance is God's promises to us. Those are the things that we receive because we are brought into this family of Christ, sons and daughters of God. Our, our inheritance is the promises of God. If God has promised it, then as a, as a fellow heir with and in Christ, we will receive it. That's our inheritance. And again, we could, man, we could spend a long time unpacking that. Um, but to stay focused on the topic this morning, I'll, I'll just leave it there. In, in those two passages, and, and there's lots of others in the Bible, all believers in Jesus are spoken of in those familial terms because of the work of Jesus. And so I think there's lots of implications that we can take from those truths. And so I, I've got those listed in the, the sermon notes for you. Um, one of the implications I see that, again, talking about the worldwide church, the larger church, we are all sons and daughters of God, and so there's no elite status given to anyone based upon ethnicity or wealth or intellect or occupation or church tradition or anything else. All have the same Lord and Savior in Christ. And I, I think Peter said it, I, he just said it perfectly when he, he opened his second letter with these words. He said, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Peter's writing to the recipients of his letter and saying that your faith is of equal standing as my faith. And, and so the question is, is Peter writing as an apostle to those who are not an apostle? Is he writing, is he referencing the fact that he was a Jew and he's writing to Gentiles? I'm not sure exactly, but it, it really doesn't matter. What he's saying is that my faith is no better or worse than, than your faith. Our faith is of equal standing. All believers are equally sons and daughters of God. And I think there's a great challenge in there for us as the American branch of the worldwide church. Uh, because we live in the United States and are used to assuming that our country ought to be the preeminent one in the world, we can begin to look down on other people and, and the ways they might do things. And there's times and places where this attitude has, has infiltrated the American church and, and our attitudes toward the worldwide church. Um, you and I are no less a son or daughter of God 
than our brothers and sisters in Belize or, or Congo or Russia right now, which might bring some strong uh, emotions within us, right? Uh, There's no elite status within the family of God. We are all, our faith is all equal as as sons and daughters through Christ. And so that's that's something that, like I said, I think we as American Christians really need to, um, to remember. Another implication is that we ought to have care and concern for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world. Um, I, I think this is displayed so well in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So Paul writes to the church there and he says, Now concerning brotherly love, again, I mean, you hear the familial terms, right? Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. So, so the believers in the church in Thessalonica loved those in the church in Macedonia so much that they gave them generous financial aid when they were in need. And, and Paul even took this whole situation and wrote about it in, his, uh, in 2 Corinthians because he wanted to spur that church on to act more like the Thessalonian church who loved the Macedonians. Right? I mean, you can see this, this care and concern within the early church for brothers and sisters in Christ who were not in their immediate context. They were caring for one another around the Roman world at that time. So what happens to our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world should matter to us. Should matter to us here in Eureka, Illinois. So the pain and the confusion experienced by our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia right now should matter to us. It should matter. The, the, the tensions within the Southern Baptist Convention or the United Methodist denominations right now over policy and doctrine, it, it ought to matter to us. Uh, the oppression of our brothers and sisters in North Korea should matter to us. Um, And I'm not saying that we have to carry the complete burden of each and every one of those things. We are not called to that. We are not equipped to to that. But we shouldn't just brush those things off and say, well, you know, that's them over there. It's not, it doesn't really affect me, so I'm just going to let it go. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's a way to think about it. Every Christian in every situation that I just mentioned is someone who will inhabit the new heaven and new earth with us someday. So if I hear about a brother or sister, a situation in North Korea, and if I'm just tempted to say, well, it doesn't really affect me, they're my brother and sister in Christ. I I will potentially probably meet them on the new earth someday. So knowing that that is the future reality, how does that impact now, right? How does that impact my prayers for them how I respond to their situation now. And again, I mean, we can overburden ourselves by taking all of it onto our own shoulders and trying to carry it ourselves. That's not what we're called to, but we're called to have care and concern for our brothers and sisters around the world. So there's those implications. And then uh, another one, because we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, there ought to be a, 
a general unity of purpose that we have. So all believers on earth today ought to have the purposes that we've been talking about already in this sermon series, displaying reconciliation, serving as priests, abiding in the vine, following our chief shepherd, all believers ought to have the, the, a general unity in those purposes. Now, the specific ways that those purposes are carried out can vary, and, and we'll get to that shortly because we're going to talk about the local church, but those ought to be the purposes of the worldwide church no matter where a believer finds themselves, and that unity of purpose can then lead to a greater depth of love for one another. So, so the New Testament is clear that, that this family metaphor applies to the worldwide church, but it also powerfully applies to the local church, which is where we'll spend a bit more of our time this morning. And Paul makes the connection very clear in 1 Timothy. Uh, chapter 5, he's, he's writing to Timothy regarding Timothy's leadership role in the church in Ephesus. And so in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is what Paul says. He tells Timothy, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. I mean, you can hear the familial terms there, right? When, when, when uh, Paul is giving Timothy wisdom on how to interact with his fellow believers in the Ephesian church, those are the terms that Paul uses, father, brother, mother, sister. And, and, and we'll get into the implications for the local church soon, but, but for now, we're just simply noting that, we're just noting how Paul references familial relationships. Again, in their ideal form, when he talks about, uh, when he advises Timothy on how to treat others in the church. And, and, and again, there's multiple places we could see this. Uh, I'll just read one more out of Romans uh, chapter 12. Paul says it this way to the church in Rome. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So he says, love one another with brotherly affection. It, it, it's sometimes taught that in the Greek language, there are three words for love. And we've probably heard this before, right? There's eros, there's philia, and there's agape. Um, but in actuality, there's four common words in the Greek language for love. The fourth one is storge. And storge <clears throat> speaks of reciprocal love between one's kindred. So husband, wife, brother, sister, parent, child. Um, and in Romans 12, verse 10, <clears throat> what Paul does here is he combines two of the words. He combines philia and storge in order to reference a, a devoted, affectionate love within a family. So when Paul speaks about the local church, he's not talking about a group of semi-connected people who happen to sit in the same sanctuary in the same pews once a week. That, that's not how he's referencing a church family. The ideal that he is speaking of is a close-knit, mutually loving church in which the individuals are united together like a family would be. So no matter how, how different from each other 
people might be, there was to be that filiostorgos among them, that familial loving affection. And so this is, this is what we're called to. This is what is to be permeating us here at Eureka Bible Church. <clears throat> As brothers and sisters in Christ, we're, we're to have that, that loving affection for one another that would be similar to that of a physical family. And so, so what's the implications? I mean, we already, we already talked about the implications of the worldwide church being described by familial terms. What about the implications for the local church, for our local church here? And first, I, I think we ought to literally apply Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We ought to treat one another in ways fitting for a family. And again, the ideal sense of that, right? I mean, we can think of some, some ways we might want to treat our family. That is, that's not what Paul's talking about. The ideal sense there, right? We ought to be treating one another in ways fit, fitting for a family. So what he draws out here, uh, for those who are older, it means respecting, honoring those who are older. Now, our culture has, has made old age, gray hair, things associated with that into a mark of shame. That is what our culture has done. We just need to call a spade a spade. Uh, being referred to as old should not be offensive. It should not be a mark of shame. That is foreign to, it's foreign to the world of the Bible, and it's foreign to how things should be. Rather than a mark of shame, we must rightly recognize that as a mark of honor and a mark of respect. And, and Paul tells Timothy here, treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers. How, how does the Bible lead us to treat fathers and mothers? You can go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and your mother. And I think it's what Paul is drawing on here. So when speaking to Timothy, I mean, Paul doesn't say, he's not saying an older person is unapproachable. He doesn't say that the missteps of an older person must be overlooked and swept under the rug. Instead, he says, don't rebuke them, but encourage them. And, and the word for rebuke there refers to chastisement and harshness. So you know, he's, he's saying an, an older person must not be treated that way, but with honor. I mean, still addressing what needs to be addressed, but, but respectfully. I mean, you can, you can sense the, the tone, the attitude that uh, Paul is advising Timothy and, and all of us to have within this church family. And so, I, you know, what I think this means also is that, that older men and older women have a definite place in the church. There's just no question about that. And, and, and so to kind of use a sports phrase, if I can attempt to outkick my coverage a little bit, I want to speak to those of us in this category who are older men and older women. And I'll let you decide if that's you or not. I, I'm not going to tell you, but, but uh, the local church is a place for everyone. It, it is. And, and it's a place for everyone, not just to attend, but to serve as well. Now, I, I mean, as, as, as our bodies age, as things break down, as our passions or interests change as we go through different seasons of life, what that service looks like might change when compared to an earlier season of life. So, so a person who, who for 20 years taught children's church, for example, might 
at one point come to realize things have changed a little bit. It doesn't mean there's an age limit to serving in, in a, a place like Children's Church, but we recognize a, maybe a unique challenge that that, that role can contain and how a person can get to the point where, where physically that role doesn't fit them as well as it once did. And that's fine, right? But that being said, a person never graduates or retires from serving within a church. There's never that point. And, and I think, I think for, for us as a local church, uh, there's, an, uh, there's an area where we have room for growth there. And I'm not pointing my finger at, at any older adults. I'm, I'm claiming responsibility in this uh, for me. Um, I mean, the simple uh, reality is that our church, uh, I said last week, our church was planted 45 years ago. It was planted predominantly by people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, Well, simple math would tell you that everyone in their 20s and 30s that helped plant the church is now 60s and 70s. Um, And and we've consistently had older adults in our our church family, but we probably have a bigger proportion in that group now than than we've had uh, in the life of our church. And so that means that that we, that, that I, need to give thought and discernment to what does that mean for service within our, within our church family. Um, and admittedly, I, this is something I've, I've brought up with our elders before. We had the beginnings of a discussion on this topic back in February of 2020, right before the world blew up, right? And so you can, you can, uh, you can just guess why that, that discussion might have been derailed just a little bit. But, but, you know, I think it's time to think about that again. And so I, I, would, encourage, I would encourage anyone, but, but especially those uh, in the older generations, to share wisdom, to share suggestions about how we can tweak current areas of service or identify new areas of service that those in the older generations are, are most equipped to, to carry out. Uh, we must be a church family that doesn't reflect the culture's idea of old age. That, 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 is, that misses the mark. We must be a church family that reflects the biblical idea of old age. And so I'm excited to see how we can, can grow and, and evolve into that even more. But what Paul tells Timothy there in respecting and honoring those who are older, he also I think alludes to seeing significance in those who are younger. Um, just prior to chapter 5 in 1 Timothy 4, verse 12, Paul told Timothy, don't let anyone despise you because you are young. He said, Timothy, you can set an example for others in, in speech, conduct, love, life, purity. So we think about the implications of that. Our, our uh, young people, our children and our teenagers they're not the future of the church. Hear me when I say that. They are not the future of the church. I understand the sentiment behind that statement, but I don't fully agree with it. Uh, our young people are the part of the current church family. It's not something down the road. They're part of the church now. And, and again, I'll, I'll raise my hand and say, I have room to grow in this area. I think back to uh, just a, a few months ago, we were in need of someone to fill in um, running the projection computer on a Sunday morning, you know, the one that controls the screen back here. Um, and all of our regular volunteers, all of our substitute volunteers were either gone that Sunday or already serving in, uh, in other roles. 
And it was at that point that someone suggested my daughter Caitlin could run it. And, and when they said that, my initial gut reaction was to be like, it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, this is Caitlin we're talking about. And it hit me, this is Caitlin that we're talking about. <laughs> right? I, I mean, it can be so easy for me and, and maybe for you too to think that our young people aren't ready for certain roles and opportunities. And for sure, we need to use wisdom and discernment uh, when encouraging them to serve, but we can't be thinking about them as the children that they used to be, right? Because it's so easy to do that. Oh, I remember when, you know. But who they are now and who they're growing into as well. And, and, and there's a challenge in there for you as well, younger generation. Um, it's a challenge to see yourselves as an equal and valuable part of this church family. Even if we as adults might fail to treat you that way, that is what you are, equal and valuable part of the family. So just as a person's never too old to serve in some way, they're never too young to serve in some way. And so as a church family, we, we must love each other like family and see each other as equal and, and valuable parts of this family. So, so I, I would say that's one implication. Um, another one is, is our view of church growth should be similar to that of growth within a family. The church is a family. Uh, the church is not a business. And, and there's some business principles that, that can be of benefit to the church. But traditional business growth metrics, specifically regarding size and money, can be a dangerous focus for a church family. Uh, they just can be. When the New Testament talks about church growth, these are the kind of things that we read. In Ephesians 4, it says, Grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. First uh, Peter 2, it says, Grow up into salvation. Second Peter 3, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 9, Increase the harvest of your righteousness. Acts 19 talks about the word of the Lord continuing to increase and prevail mightily. Those are the things we as a church family must pray for and strive for when it, when it comes to church growth. And if, and if God wants to increase the numerical size of our church family, then so be it. Great. You know, that, 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 that's a good thing. But, but if not, there's still so much growing to be done in us and among us in terms of our maturity and our love for one another. The, the things that the New Testament talks about with church growth. And, and it's because we, we desire that kind of growth that we must work on being both intentionally transparent with one another and intentionally intrusive with one another. And that's what families are, right? Let's be honest. Families are intentionally intrusive and intentionally transparent. I would venture a guess that your home and my home is the place where people see the most transparent us and where we most intrude into other people's lives, right? I mean, isn't, that, isn't that our families? We need more of that within, within uh, the church family. And, and again, raise my hand, this is not natural for me. Uh, I struggle with pursuing this, especially intentional 
intrusiveness. That, that's not my natural bent to be intentionally intrusive into situations. And again, there, there needs to be discernment there, right? But, man, as I've been working, uh, working, preparing for this week's sermon, uh, God's been challenging me in that way to be more intentionally intrusive in people's lives within our church, in a loving way, of course, right? I mean, it's not about shame. It's not about judgment. It's about, it's about shepherding. It's about caring, so if it ever seems like I'm being uh, a bit intrusive into your life in the future, I probably am. <laughs> I'll just give you a fair warning. Probably am, uh, but I've given you a warning. And, and not just being intentionally intrusive, but intentionally transparent as well. Um, I can grow in both of those. And I would encourage you to lean into those two things as well. Intentionally intrusive and transparent. I, I can't intrude into everyone's life on my own. <laughs> I, I need help in doing that. Right? But that, again, as a church family, that, that's what we're called to. And so we all ought to be striving for that greater transparency and, of ourselves and, again, in a caring way, intruding into the lives of others. And I, I, and I know as we do those things, we'll be growing as a family in the ways that the New Testament describes here. In the last uh, implication, again, like the, like the worldwide church, uh, our local church family must have unity of purpose of all these things that we've been talking about in this series. But the difference from the worldwide church is that while it's in a more general sense there with the local church, we should be unified in specific ways as we carry out those purposes. So, so for example, we don't we don't just seek to display reconciliation generally. We do it specifically through uh, sitting by people at church, interacting with people at church who are different than us or who we've maybe even had tension with in the past, but we've sought reconciliation in the midst of that. Um, or, for example, we, we, we don't seek to be priests generally, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, but specifically uh, as elders through our extended time of prayer at our meetings. We seek to specifically carry out that purpose. Um, we don't seek to abide in Jesus generally, but specifically through following his commands to love one another by, by giving a meal after a funeral, for example. I mean, there's specific ways that we unite together to carry out these purposes of the Church of Jesus Christ. Now we know from experience, families, family relationships can be messy, right? I mean, they just, they just are. Oftentimes, they're the ones that cause us the most pain. Uh, it's just the reality of it. And because the local church is, is a family, the relationships here can be messy. They can cause us pain. Much like, much like families are bound together by a covenant, a foundational marriage covenant, so the church is a family that, that is bound together by a covenant, by a membership covenant specifically. And in ways similar to a marriage covenant, uh, church membership is, is a declaration that a person will give of themselves to their church family, uh, work for the growth of their church family, protect their church family, be committed to their church family, even when, when things get a bit bumpy. 
Um, it's a way to say, please intrude into my life. And by the way, I'm going to intrude into your life too. And we're going to be transparent with one another. I mean, that's, that's one of the things we're communicating through uh, church membership. And so um, I warned you we'd be talking about this in this series. And so one more time, I would just like to, to uh, encourage you, if, if you're a brother or sister of the worldwide church, but haven't yet made a, a covenant commitment to a local church, I would encourage you to do so. Um, I, you know, I, I look around this room and I can't help but feel blessed by being a part of this church family for the past 10 years. It's truly been a blessing. And my, my desire and my prayer is, is that, uh, that every one of us here would find the blessing that comes, not just from being a part of the larger family of God, but from being covenant members of a local church family as well. I fully believe in the, the blessing and the importance of that and would encourage anyone to, to consider that for themselves as well. Um, again, talking about the church as, as a, a family and it can make us uneasy and uncomfortable at times when we think about relationships and all that comes with that. But there's, there's such a blessing from leaning into that. And, and I think this is one of the reasons that the New Testament most frequently refers to believers in those familial terms. And, and uh, for, for continued growth in that, again, it's, it, uh, you know, God has called us. He's, he's done the work to bring us into his family. And so may we live in that. May we carry that out and be part of the larger church, but, but a local church family as well. Would you stand with me? Let's come to our Father in prayer, as we are so blessed to do as his sons and daughters. God, we come to you today, and uh, and uh, I give you praise that uh, that we even have the opportunity to be part of your family, to be your son, to be your daughter, to be heirs with Christ. Uh, it is such a blessing, God, and we know that it is uh, it is a reality for us only because of the work that you've done. And so, may we not forget that. May we. May we worship you in response to that. May we give you praise. And may we follow you in obedience because of that as well. And God, I pray for uh, this church family here. I thank you for the blessing of it, for each one that's part of the family. Thank you for the blessing that's been in my life, and I, I know others would say the same as well. And God, would you help us to continue to grow? Would you help us to continue to grow in this uh, intimate, brotherly affection for one another? God, I, I, I thank you for the blessings that come from that. I thank you that as we, as we grow closer to one another, that that, in a mysterious way, also draws us closer to you. 
And so, God, we thank you for how you work in us, how you work through us. Would you guide us? Would you direct us? God, we pray these things in your precious name. Amen.